This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So good evening, everyone. So tonight is part of a series on balanced practice. And um, tonight I want to talk about a particular aspect of balancing mindfulness, concentration, and insight, which are really three, you could call them um, foundational aspects of meditation practice. And I'll say a little more about that. So, um, to talk about how they're balanced, we want to un- make sure we all understand what do we even mean when we, uh, when we use the terms mindfulness and insight and concentration. So we'll get to that, but first, I think to really understand it, any of this, we need to back up and understand the context from a Buddhist perspective in which we we hold and understand and practice meditation. It's a meditation, you know, there's many, many ways that meditation is taught. It's not just one way. It's a big world out there. And even just within the Buddhist world, it's there's many not only techniques, practices, but many different aims. Not everybody's practicing with the same goals in mind, too. So um, I'd like to offer my own take on, from a Dharma perspective, wh- what, why we might want to meditate. And then from there, that'll help us understand these elements and then how they can work together in, in, a, in a balanced way. You know, uh, people come to meditation for many, many different reasons. You, uh, I'll bet if we took a poll, some of you may not actually know exactly what the reason is. We're just kind of drawn towards it. Uh, we may not know. Or for some of us, we're looking for something very specific. People come to meditation for um, stress reduction. You know, maybe our minds are out of control and we're looking for some relief. Uh, we're looking for maybe tools to work with chronic pain or illnesses. You know, there can be lots and lots of different um, uh, things or issues that we're working with, dealing with, that we may have think meditation can help. And meditation really does uh, help us in all these ways. We really do learn to calm our minds and be more peaceful. We really do learn to have more stress reduction. Um, We really do learn to work with, if we're dealing with chronic uh, pain or, or difficulties, all of those benefits are there. And they're important. I would say from a Dharma perspective... Uh, we want to retain all of those benefits, but we're actually being invited to add in a piece. Because in addition to all of those good benefits, um, from a Buddhist perspective, what we're being asked to do is something actually quite radical. And sometimes the Dharma is, you'll hear this expression of going against the stream. Matter of fact, I think there's a book out with the title Against the Stream, you know, which is a good title. And the idea is 
that you know all of us uh, in the way that we, we we tend to seek our well-being or happiness in a particular way, and the Dharma is asking us to actually make a fundamental shift in how we seek our well-being. And what I mean by that is that really all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, um, I think, we're, uh, you know, everyone's seeking to have more of those things or situations, experiences that we think will make us happy. And we want to avoid the situations that we think will make us unhappy, right? We want to have more of what we want to have happen to us and less of what we don't have. I mean, that's kind of almost nonsensical. It's so obvious. You know, no one is seeking to have less of what you want in your life and more of what you don't want, right? And yeah, we we laugh about that because it's so obvious. So again, whether we may or may not be conscious of it, but probably just as human beings, all of us, are, that's what we're doing. We're seeking to change our experiences, change the situation, the circumstances of our lives, to set, set things up in the way we want and avoid the things we don't want. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, and I don't know as human beings if we would ever stop doing that. So it's fine except for one thing. In case you haven't noticed, regardless of your best efforts, Sometimes you do get what you want. Sometimes you don't. And sometimes you get what you don't want. In other words, we only have so much control, right? In a way, it's, it's, we, we do our best, but you, you, we can't totally control things. And there's an element of uncertainty and instability to life and experiences, right? And so... Um, I think what the Dharma is asking us to do is start to make a shift then in, it's asking us, uh, in the end, you get what you get. So the question is, what are we going to do with you get what you get? That's that's, That's kind of a deep question. And so the Dharma is is asking us to uh, start to look for our happiness not only in changing our circumstances. And again, we don't want to be foolish and stop taking care of ourselves and know when to change things. It's the old serenity prayer, right? That's saying you want to have, I can't, I always mess it up, but it's, some of you have to help me. But, you know, it's basically asking for the wisdom or the discernment, you know, to, to know, change the things you can, of course, influence us. But to know what you can't change and have the, the wisdom and the peace to, to come to some acceptance around that, that's really the essence of the Dharma. Right? And so we can start to seek our well-being not only in circumstances, not only in the experience, but seek our well-being in how we're relating to whatever's happening. Right? How we're relating to whatever's happening. That's a very fundamental shift and um, part of this also, part of the instability that if you hang around in the Buddhist world or, or, or in the Dharma world for any length of time, uh, you'll hear many, many discussions and talks on the topic of impermanence. Because the, it, we're actually in a, a, even a more precarious situation than I've already been talking about because not only is there an, a, an inherent uncertainty or unreliable nature to life. But 
there's the issue around impermanence, which is basically stating the obvious that nothing lasts. So even if you could totally control things, which we cannot, but even if you could, and even if you could really get what you want all the time, it's still not going to last. So it, it doesn't mean we won't have some happiness or enjoyment in the moment. But we say it's not ultimately going to give us the, 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 the happiness we want or the well-being because things don't last. So we have an, uh, an uncertain situation and everything's impermanent. And the thing about impermanence is, you know, when uh, uh, we love impermanence, when we don't like what's happening. It's great. Not so much when we're getting what we want. Things are going our way. Right? Then what can happen is we can become complacent or we kind of become kind of unconscious about things and kind of go on automatic pilot and uh, thinking just things will just continue on and on as they have been, and we forget that, no, things are going to change. And then when things inevitably change, we think, oh, it's all falling apart or it's going wrong, but nothing went wrong. It just changed. This is how life is. And so, again, the Dharma is asking us, it's, it's, but the Dharma is it's often talked about where it's pointing is called a liberation through non-clinging. Right? This idea of non-clinging is not grasping, holding, clutching so tightly onto things, but at least to the best we can, we start to learn how to, as we start to let go around things. Again, it's not saying that you stop taking care of yourself or, or, or become passive, you're not, that you're no longer involved in your life. We still want to be wise and skillful and take care of ourselves. So my recommendation is you should still exercise and eat healthy food, and all the things we're supposed to do, and hopefully we treat people well, and we have good relationships, and we do everything we can to, to aim our lives in, in a wholesome, good direction. But let's not forget also to bring in the Dharma piece of, of um, deepening our ability to let go and not cling so we can learn to meet this changing flow of experience on its own terms. At the end of the day, after we've tried our best, you get what you get. What do we do with you get what you get? That's the question. And so this is, from a Dharma perspective, that's the liberation that comes from not ha- having to have it some way, but really finding a way where our hearts and minds can rest at peace. We can have open hearts, let go of clinging in the midst of really an ever-widening uh, range of what happens. One of the images that I use that I think works very well is I like to think of, think of yourself at the center of a circle. And however big the circumference, the boundary of the circle is, it contains all the experiences of our lives for which, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, for which we're able to really be with them and, and, and not lose our equanimity and our open-heartedness and really be at peace with. And if something is of such a nature or it's so strong that it, it's outside of our circle, well, then it's too much for us and, and we're not able to work with it. We, our ability to work with it hasn't reached that point yet. And, you know, if something is so strong or so of such a nature that either it truly is too much for us to learn how to let go and be with or... Um, 
then we better be able to bring down the intensity. Sometimes you can't bring down the intensity. And if it's really too much and you really can't bring down the intensity, that is a lot of suffering. And that's why we need a lot of compassion for ourselves during those times. So I'm not going to focus on the loving kindness and compassion aspect tonight so much, but that's also an important part around these practices too. It's huge. You can think of Dharma practice as expanding the circle so it's bigger and bigger, so it can contain more of the experiences of our lives, of our own being, at which we, our minds are at peace. Okay. So when you hear these teachings, you might think, okay, that, uh, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to sign up for that, this liberation through non-clinging, non-clinging. And to me, I use the word non-clinging. It also includes an open-heartedness. The, the loving kindness and the compassion kind of comes in, right? Because when we're not contracted and when we're more open and at peace and connected, then our hearts stay more open, right? So that's a part of, of not this grasping and clinging that we learn to let go around. So we may say, okay, that, this sounds good. It makes sense. I understand from a Dharma perspective where it's pointing. Yep, I'm going to sign up for that. And then, well, what is it that will happen? You, you will, as many of you know, you'll, it won't take long to find out that it's not so easy to do all the time. That in certain circumstances, you will be able to uh, let go of clinging, keep your heart open to situations or people. But all it takes is the right causes and conditions to come together. You're caught right back again. You're hooked again. This is where the, the mental training, the training of our hearts and minds comes in. We need to develop certain qualities of our minds so that we really can uh, learn to liberate our minds through non-clinging and keep our hearts from closing off in an ever-widening range of experiences. We need to practice. This is the place for meditation practice. That's the context in which I would like to offer that we hold it. And so then, let's talk about some of the qualities that we're trying to develop in support. Remember, we want to hold it in the context from a Buddhist perspective of the liberation through non-clinging. Right? So let me name some of the then main, what I call the building blocks of meditation. Um, as you, it doesn't take long to find out either through reading all the different meditation books that are out there or listening as different teachers come. There's not just one way that meditation is practiced or taught. It's a big world. And it can be confusing. One teacher saying one thing and another teacher saying the exact opposite. That's actually quite common. And there's a lot of that going on. And unfortunately, sometimes it even gets to the point even, believe it or not, even in the Buddhist world where people can actually criticize other people just because, you know, well, they're doing a particular technique and this other person's doing a different technique. They say, no, that's right or wrong. I'll come back to that in a bit, but for now I'll just say um, what I want to offer is there actually is no right or wrong technique. All these different practices work well for certain people and for other people they won't be a, such a good match. It's about finding I'll say more about that. So we don't want to get hung up on a particular technique as, oh, I've got the right way. It's not like that. Any practice that helps us quiet our minds, uh, open our hearts, 
brighten our awareness is going to help support us in liberation through non-clinging. So let me name some of these building blocks. I've already said something about the the heart-centered qualities of loving kindness and compassion and everything. As I said earlier, that's not the folk, what I want to focus on tonight, but I will say I hope the spirit of, of kindness and care for ourselves comes through everything that I say and everything we do. It's so foundational. In fact, I actually believe that sometimes it's taught that the foundation of, of Dharma practice is what's known in, the, the, in Pali as the word sila, Selim is translated as uh, morality, ethics, virtue. Personally, I like the word virtue. It's just my personal favorite, virtuous living. But, uh, and you'll hear t- uh, talk about what are called precepts. There's a common list of five precepts, which are training principles around non-harming, not stealing, things like this that we talk about, not causing harm around sexuality and speech, not abusing intoxicants, these kind of things. It's, they're guidelines for, for living wisely. Um, th- that is foundational, but I actually think self-compassion is even more foundational. This is not coming from the Buddha. This is my own. This is just from me. And the reason I say that is because some of us, for some of us it can be harder than for others. But, you know, for those of us who, we can all be self-critical sometimes, but for those of us who can really be self-critical, you know, some of us, we've all got what I call our top ten tunes, which are the main ways we create suffering for ourselves and for others. And, We probably all share certain ones in common, but uh, a critical mind is is one of maybe one of your top ten tunes, and um, and so if so, um, you know we can even when we undertake something as wholesome and wise and beautiful as to live more virtuously, try to align ourselves with precepts and with sila. We can tear ourselves down because it's easy to find all the ways where we find fall short. None of us are perfect. So we want to bring that sense of kindness and self-compassion. Again, you do the best you can. Sometimes we don't know how to do it. And all we can do is hold the idea that, well, maybe someday it might be possible to be more compassionate for ourselves. And we just want to keep the possibility in mind. And if that's the best you can do, that's okay. We just do the best we can with it. But we just work with it the best we can. So... That's all I'll say tonight, even though I do think it's foundational. I want to focus on mindfulness, concentration, and insight for tonight. So let me define what I mean when I use these terms. People use them in different ways. The term mindfulness is used in a a wide range of ways. I know John Kabat-Zinn defines it. If you don't know, he's the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction. He calls mindfulness... Pay something like, this is pretty close, paying attention on purpose in a particular way. That's a fine definition. Uh, that's not my definition of it. To me, that would be more defining a practice of mindfulness, but the actual the state of being mindful. I define it, this is just my own definition. The other definitions are fine. My definition is uh, when you're mindful, you're not lost on automatic pilot. That's what I mean. 
Sometimes people will say when someone loses their mindfulness, they say, oh, that person, they went unconscious. And of course, we know what they mean. But they're not unconscious. They're conscious. They're just lost and caught up in whatever's happening. Right? I call it being on automatic pilot. And when we wake up out of automatic pilot, we really clearly know what's happening. So if you're angry in a situation... Isn't it very different? You know, you couldn't be just in it. And if anyone asked you if you're angry, you you would say, well, of course I know I'm angry, but if you're lost and just caught in it, that's very different than just being able to just know I'm angry. Anger is arising, however you want to uh, um, uh, articulate it. And then at least because we have some awareness around it, it gives us the possibility, it gives us a little space between what happens and our response to it. That mindfulness gives us a little wedge of choice, of the possibility of choice. So we can at least hopefully have a better chance to make some more skillful and wise decisions. Even being mindful doesn't always do that. But um, because even sometimes, you know, we can all experience situations in which we know what's happening, we're mindful, but the power of it is so, of what's going on is so strong, it still sweeps us away, So mindfulness alone isn't necessarily enough, but it's certainly uh, necessary. If you're lost on automatic pilot, all bets are off. Sometimes in meditation, then if uh, the meditation instructions will be, um, you know, okay, whatever you say. Say you're working with your breathing, mindfulness of breathing, which is very common. It's not if you don't have to do that particular kind of practice, but um, you know, let's say, okay, stay with your breath, and then we'll say, you know, what's the instruction when you forget about the breath and you're lost in thought? And people say, well, the instruction is to come back. But that's actually not true. Uh, when you're, there is no instruction when you're lost. You don't even know you're gone. No instruction. It's only once you've already woken up, you've come out of the trance of automatic pilot, that then you have the potential, the possibility of a choice point. And then you can choose to come back or beat yourself up for having gone away or however you tend to respond. So the mindfulness is um, um, critical. We can use our mindfulness in particular ways to direct our attention to, to cultivate some other qualities. So we're cultivating the mindfulness. But then um, the next quality I want to talk about is what's, I'll use the term concentration. The word in both Pali and Sanskrit is samadhi. Matter of fact, my book is back there, The Experience of Samadhi. This is the word that's translated when we talk about concentrating the mind. Now, this is a big, big topic, and uh, I'll just say a little about it. But basically what it means, it it means steadying the mind so it's not jumping around all over the place where it can can really be still, right? Um, We could say a lot lot more about that, but um, that's the basic meaning of, of, of it's collecting our mind, bringing it together, and bringing it to some steadiness or some quiet or some stillness, right? That's the samadhi. Well, I'll just say a little bit here. It's such a big topic. It turns out 
uh, there's not just one way to steady the mind. I'll just give you a little taste. For example, you could steady your mind so much that, um, say, you're putting your attention on your breathing. So you're using mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing. You're using your mindfulness to train your mind to, to, be, to stay and not wander off so much. You, could, you can get so skilled at steadying your mind just on whatever, say, the breath, that your mind would never wander off. You're getting pretty far along. You get these specialized states known as jhana, which I'm not really going to talk about. They're important, but we're not going to get into that tonight. You can get, become so skilled at just staying focused on this one thing, the breath. They call it being one-pointed. You actually don't notice anything else. You could actually not notice sound. You not even notice your body. You actually can lose awareness of your body. You just get it. And there's other experiences that would come of like bliss and lights and different things. But uh, that's one way. And in a way, you can get, become so still, but you don't notice a lot else. That's one whole way it can go. There's, there's other ways it can go too, which is the opposite, where your mind comes just as still actually. But uh, you're not still on a point. It's more of an open, inclusive awareness that where there's still an awareness of other experiences happening, but the mind is still unmoving. I only, we're going to have some time for discussion and question, and if you want, we can explore the, this concentration side more. But I'm just giving you those, I know that I, did, I just said something really briefly, but just to point out, it's a big world, it's not just one way. And as I said, I'm going to come back to this, but there's a lot of ways to practice and develop these, and they're all good and, and serve us well. So I don't, I don't want to... I just want to mention that don't worry if you read different books or hear different teachers talking about how the different ways that this concentration can unfold because it's, it's not a, um, like one is right or wrong. They're just differences. And we find for ourselves what we're drawn to and what supports us the best. And again, I'll come back and, and talk about that more a little more. So we have our mindful awareness. We actually know what's happening in the moment. And then we can use our mindfulness and then develop this ability for our minds to be more steady and clear. So for any of you who have uh, either in daily life meditation or whether you've done it through retreats, have actually, you know, as you put more time in, uh, we start to, these qualities start to deepen and we actually have some real strong experiences in which the clarity of our awareness, the mindfulness and the the undistracted. The word samadhi actually means undistracted. It's a steadying of the mind, but our mind becomes undistracted. And again, you can be undistracted on a single point, like just the breath. Or you can just have a, a mind that's actually open to many experiences, but it's utterly present and undistracted. A lot of different ways an undistracted mind can develop. Um, but once we start to develop these qualities through the different various meditation practices, um, our awareness is now operating on a whole nother level of subtlety. We can perceive things that per- were un- inaccessible to us previously. Right? And any of you know, as we start to strengthen these qualities, um, um, we start to really notice when we really are resting in the stream of non-clinging on levels we haven't seen but been able to perceive because our minds are on daily life consciousness and we're kind of caught up in things and we just aren't as focused. And the way I like to think about as the mindfulness and the concentration together strengthen, uh, 
I like to think about it, and either of these images work, that you're turning your mind either into a Hubble telescope or an electron microscope. Both images work. And it can feel like both ways sometimes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. But it's this, this, this whole other heightened awareness and perception now that's available to us to understand and to turn our attention to what's going on, to the places that, uh, um, where we really are creating suffering and we haven't no, seen the way out. And now it becomes much more clear. And so it's this quality of mind that now we can turn towards the third foundational aspect, which is insight. So we had mindfulness, concentration, which means undistractedness. And then there's this third element called insight. It's also a big world. It's not just one way. And um, I'll just say very briefly, again, these are such big topics, but very briefly, kind of my own take on it. To me, insight from a Dharma perspective is any awareness or understanding or perception or knowledge or anything like that that uh, a perception we have, something we come to know or understanding in service of liberating our minds from non-clinging. I'll call that an insight. So from a traditional kind of the classic way that it's spoken about, there's like you'll have these insights into impermanence as one, where we have these, through these deep meditative states, really have, a, uh, and I can give you an example of just one of the ways that it can arise in many ways. I remember once when I was on a very long retreat, I was doing a, a one-year long retreat, and I was just, I don't know, like six months into this thing or something. And, uh, you know, normally if, if we were, even sitting here right now, you know, pick any experience you're having, maybe the sound of my voice or some experience in your body or your breathing. And if I asked you to notice the experience, you, you know, I'm sure you could say, oh, yes, okay, I feel it. I feel the breathing. I hear the, sa- the words, the sounds. And if I asked you, well, can you tell that the experience is changing? What happens for many people is they might say, well, you know, now that you mention it, now that I make a point of it, sure, I can be aware of the fact that it's changing, but I mostly notice the experience itself. I've had experiences where that flips completely around, where the, the fact of change and impermanence is what's popping out to the awareness. And if you ask me, can I actually ex- feel the experience itself? I could say, well, I guess if I make a point to look, I can, but it, I'm, it just... Impermanence itself is just popping out into my awareness so strongly. That's a deep insight into impermanence, say. If you haven't had these experiences, it's, when they happen, it's obvious, but it's not ordinary daily life kind of way of perceiving. That's an example of some of these experiences we have into impermanence. Sometimes they talk about uh, into the nature of suffering or, or the unreliable nature of, of, of existence or into what they call no self, the, our, the selfless aspect of our own being. We can have these direct uh, uh, insights into their, to that nature. That's kind of a traditional way that insights are talked about. But, you know, um, when you're sitting and meditating, or even in daily life, but we say you're sitting and meditating and you're not in some deep meditative state, 
and your body hurts and your mind won't cooperate and you call that a, whatever, a bad meditation, that's an example of an area rich with the potential for insights. Because, yes, it's not happening in the ways I was just describing, but we get to sit and try to be with ourselves and learn, can I learn to let go of my suffering with this knee pain? Or when my self-esteem or my grief or my fear is coming up or old memories or traumas or whatever and we learn how to work with them and let go around them. But that's an example of another way that we can have insights into ourselves and how we're able or not able to let go of clinging. And a lot of liberation can happen there when we, you know, if, if, if we never cultivated much mindfulness or concentration and all we did was sit and try to be present with ourselves the best we could, a lot of insight would come from there and learning. But we can do a lot more because we strengthen the concentration and the mindfulness so the power of our mind to meet and work with these things is enhanced. So there's these insights that come from deep meditative states. There's insights in meditation, as I just mentioned, during the times when you can't concentrate. But also there's daily life. And I feel like that is at least equal and maybe to to the the deep meditative insights, and and maybe even more. Because, you know, you can be sitting in meditation, and, you know, um, I mean, I've had experiences, you know, I'm I'm opening up in, you know, boundless love for all beings, or what, you know, and then I get up, and I leave the retreat, and I go home, and then I actually encounter, like, actual beings, and... uh, (laughs) I start to find all the ways where it's, oh, my heart's closing off. Okay, well, what, and that's an important learning that maybe I hadn't even noticed in the uh, rarefied world of the meditation retreat or whatever, where I didn't have to be bothered by all these pesky, annoying people <laughs> or situations at work or in my family or my neighbors or whatever it is or on the news. And, you know, it's a lot of interesting stuff in the news always. And, uh, you know, whatever it is that bothers us. So these are important areas for insights also. Psychological insights. You know, those kind of insights are not what are traditionally thought of from a Dharma perspective, but, and they, don't, they aren't necessarily in service of Dharma. Right? You can go to psychotherapy for a lot of aims, but in the Dharma context, that can often shine the light of awareness on lots of places that we're creating clinging and suffering from a, in, the, in a Dharma sense. And we, and we can have a lot of liberation and letting go there. So I think, again, when held within a Dharma context, psychological insights can work. Daily life. So there's, to me, I'm very broad-minded about what I mean when I say insights. But again, when held in a Dharma context around this liberation of non-clinging. We want to see all the places. So what happens... So, so that's kind of the insight side, right? So, these three foundational pieces, mindfulness, concentration, and insight, now we can apply these in different styles of meditation. And this is the part I want to end with tonight. Because you could, you can, there, there, I like to think of all the different practices as part of the meditation family, I tend to have a more inclusive appreciation for the range of ways it's taught. All the different teachers, all the different styles. Because clearly all these different styles have really worked 
for someone or they wouldn't be teaching in that style. So we already know that all these different styles really work. They may not all work for you. Because we're all different. And even if we all did exactly the same techniques and practices, our experience would unfold differently. The things that happen as you get concentrated are not just one way. So you'll go read some book and it'll say, okay, when you concentrate, and then you're going to start to see this light and it's going to look like a disc. You know, that's, that's a way, for example, that people sometimes will describe it. Well, guess what? A lot of people don't get a disc. Most people actually don't get the disc of light. Some do. For other people, they're just as deep. It's, it's, they're just, it's manifesting in different ways because we're all different. It's not one way. So how the interplay of mindfulness and concentration insight unfold and reveal themselves in different ways. So the important thing is to know where we want to aim and not cling to some preconceived idea that we think or are told it's supposed to be, but get interested in what's actually happening for me. So I like to, I'm going to separate out all the heart-centered practices of loving-kindness and compassion practices as a separate branch of the meditation family and talk about three other branches of the meditation family, which are concentration meditation, insight meditation, and the style I practice and teach in, which synthesizes mindfulness concentration as one path. And these are all good paths, but I just want to kind of name them. So in the path of concentration meditation, you may be, those people practicing in that style of meditation may be primarily concerned with doing practices and techniques specifically to deepen meditative concentrative states of undistractedness in various ways. Um, the idea being that they value how clear and powerful the mind becomes and might only turn to practices that they call insight meditation later after having consciously focused on the concentration side of the practice, developing that aspect of it because they see how valuable it is. Right? Some insights come go on their own. You can't really separate these things out. You just can't. But the emphasis is on cultivating the insight side. So they'll call that concentration meditation. A lot of different techniques and practices. On the insight, people who are doing insight meditation, it's kind of the opposite. Just by paying attention to what's happening in your experience moment by moment, you get a certain amount of concentration. But the emphasis is putting your attention more on all the changing experiences. What's happening in your body? What's going on in the states of your heart and mind and learning to see what's happening, learning to let go of your clinging, gaining insight, awareness into these processes. So even though concentration develops, the emphasis is on um, noticing kind of on the insight side, the, way, the insights like I was talking about earlier. That's the emphasis in that style of meditation. And then you feel, you know, you, however much concentration you get that comes naturally is on its own. These are gross generalizations in the way I'm presenting these, but I'm just trying to kind of make the distinction. So I want to finish up tonight by spending just a few minutes talking about the way that, that I practice and, and, and teach in a way that, and I'm not the only one doing this, in a way that 
even though concentration and insight are not the same things as we've discussed, um, they can come together as one path of practice. You don't have to separate them out at all. And let me explain what I mean. Without getting into specific techniques, whatever technique you're doing, say you're doing mindfulness of breathing meditation, whatever, you just stay with that. And the more you do that, your mind will become more concentrated. And you don't even need to be worrying, am I doing insight or concentration? When your body is at ease, when your mind is clear, you just stay with that and let the concentration just keep building and growing as far and take it as far as deep as, and deep as you want to go. End of the story. On its own, without you doing anything to make it happen, there will be lots of times when you can't concentrate and your body hurts and you're suffering and struggling some way. Rather than struggling to say, oh, I'm supposed to be doing concentration, you let your present moment experience reveal itself and tell you what's needed. Oh, what's happening right now is not concentrating, and I'm suffering and I'm struggling in some way. You're on the insight side of the practice now. You didn't have to choose. Your practice just revealed itself. And so now you have to bring in all the skills. You want to have different tools in your toolkit and all the skills to work well with this. How do I work with my, my body pain? Or what's going on in my mind? Or my regrets? Or my heart's closing off? Or whatever it is. And we learn to work with that. We do the best we can. We're on the insight side. And then on its own, at some point, you'll work through it or it'll settle out. Maybe later in the same day or a different sit or whatever. And you'll be... Your body will be more at ease. You'll be, your mind will be clear. You're back on the concentration side. Just stay with your breath. Keep going and just deepen it. And in this way, I'm not, but this is just a different way. I'm not saying it's better. This is very important than any of these other ways that practice is taught. But by just staying attuned to what's happening in my present moment experience without the overlay of my opinion about what it's supposed to be, but just what's actually happening and to work with it skillfully when I'm on the concentration side, when I'm on the insight side. And in this way, we learn to surf or kind of flow naturally back and forth between the concentration side, the insight side. And you get, really, you can take both of them to their, as deep as you can take them in concentration all the way to jhana, deepest levels of insight. And you don't have to say, oh, am I doing concentration? Then, oh, that means I'm not doing insight. Oh, I'm doing insight, I'm not doing concentration. You, you don't have to, to do that if you don't want. It, I mean, that's just one approach. And so that's been my particular approach. And in fact, that's kind of the, my whole book back there is, is about this particular synthesized approach. Yeah? So... Um, the last piece here, and then we'll, we'll have a few minutes to open it up if there's any questions or comments then, is I want to say a little something about technique. Um, some teachers, and it's fine in their particular system, say, okay, you've got to do this, whatever. You have, to, you have to be mindful of breathing, say. And not only that, but you've got to pay attention to your breathing at this particular place in your body. You'll hear teachers say that all the time, which is fine. That's their system. So you can try out that system, see how it's working for you. For some people, no matter what the system is, it will be a good fit. For some of you, whatever the system is, it won't be a good fit. 
So we don't need to get confused about it. I tend to be a little more, a lot more kind of open because I actually don't care what practices a person does. You can do mindfulness of breathing practices and connect with your breathing anywhere in your body you want. As long as it's the, the place that's clearest and it's really deepening your concentration the most. You can do these loving-kindness metta practices, which is really the way it tends to mostly be taught in our tradition is like repeating phrases. It's only one way to practice uh, loving-kindness practice, metta. But it, really, repeating phrases, it's mantra practice, and you can do mantra practices if you want. It can be very concentrated for some people. Mindfulness of sound. Um, you can even do visualizations. You can do um, body scans. Uh, I could name a whole bunch of different practices. doesn't matter. You find the practice. Think of it this way. Think of it. This is kind of a... may not be the best analogy, but I, I, it's a little... Not exactly right. But think of, of... Like there's this inner sanctuary we want to come to. And all these different techniques, they're just techniques. Let's not make a big deal about a particular technique. They're just doorways into the same inner sanctuary. Let's not get hung up on which doorway got you in. Let's just find your close... You know, if you're on that side of the building and there's a door there, you know, do you really want to walk all the way over to this side building to take the door here that gets you in? You know, you're standing out there in the rain. Get out of the rain. Come on in. Here, we'll come in this way. We're in the inner sanctuary. All of these techniques, if they're guided properly, and this is a big thing, so we need some, some guidance on there, even visualizations, which for some people can kind of be disembodying, can, can be very embodying, can, can bring you into the same place. And then once we, we get into a certain depth on the concentration, it's, it's beyond any of these techniques anyway. I'm not getting to the how-to about that, but it's beyond any of these techniques anyway. It's, and and they, so they all can, can be pointed to converge together. So I like to encourage people to find the practice or the technique that you're most drawn to, that really feels like it's working, and go with that. Look to see what happens. You'll see if it's supporting you, if it feels right and good, if it's deepening you. If it's not disconnecting, but further to not only settle and steady the mind, but feel like you're enhancing connection with yourself, do that. You'll see the mind is brighter and clearer. You're deepening the concentration. Your self-awareness becomes so much more, your perceptions are so keen and subtle, opening up to whole other levels on the inside. Anything that does that uh, will serve you. And then it may be that you find that, oh, you know what, this isn't working that well. Oh, I'm kind of drawn to this. I read a different book from this different teacher or another teacher came here and they're saying kind of practice in this way. Okay, well, wait, let me try that out. Or no, I'm not drawn to it. You use your own intuition. Follow it as long as you can be authentic as you can. You just do the best you can. You can't see your own blind spots, but as true to yourself as you can if, if something's really working or not. And in this way, we don't have to make anybody right or wrong. We don't have to get too hung up on the technique. We know where we're aiming. It's a liberation of non-clinging through non-clinging and open-hearted loving-kindness. And it's supported by strengthening our mindfulness, our concentration and insight.
and our love. And any practice or technique that supports that will be of great benefit. And in whatever way you want to combine emphasis on concentration and insight, you know, is fine. You actually can't go too wrong. Yeah. So I'm going to stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.